0: Welcome to New Books in American Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Diana Pasquale, and today I'll be talking to Lauren Klein, a professor in the English department at Emory University and author of An Archive of Taste, Race and Eating in the Early United States, which is published by the University of Minnesota Press, released earlier this year. And this is what the publisher has to say about this wonderful book. Klein offers richly layered accounts of the enslaved men and women who cooked the meals of the nation's founders and, in doing so, directly affected the development of our, of our national culture. From Thomas Jefferson's emancipation agreement with his enslaved chef to Melinda Russell's domestic cookbook, the first, American, the first African-American authored culinary text, the first book to examine the gustatory origins of ascetic taste in early American literature an archive of taste shows how thinking about eating can help to tell new stories about the range of people who worked to establish a cultural foundation for the United States. Welcome, Lauren. So thanks, uh, thanks for coming. Thanks for talking to me today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your taking the time. No problem. In this book, you assert that taste is equivalent to what might be called a judgment call. And in the book, when you write of how we process the world, you write each single experience, aesthetic or otherwise, is first registered through the senses. And then, and only then, is it evaluated by the mind. And I bring this particular piece of, piece of writing up because I wanna give you the opportunity to tell us the story of George Washington's luxurious and extravagant shad and how it informed your research about aesthetics and what you describe as Republican taste.
1: Sure. Yeah, that's a really good place to start. You know, I think the the starting point for my book was really what you described, which is that, you know, we don't always think about what we eat or how we eat. Um, and yet we always do think about, you know, when you put something in your mouth, you're usually thinking something about it. And when you stop and you say, well, like, what, you know, what am I thinking about? Um, right you know, is it the flavor? Is it something about where it came from? Is it old or is it new? Is it delicious? You know, all of these judgments are, they come from a really interesting and complicated set of signals, some of which are sensory, like is it sweet, salty, sour, you know, things like that. Um, Others have to do with what it looks like, um, and then a lot more have to do with um, the sort of broader context in which Um, in which the food came from. And so that was sort of the starting point for me, um, thinking about eating in this way and wondering, you know, if we took seriously that experience, which happens all the time, um, and asked ourselves sort of, what does it tell about? What does it let us know more um, about our culture? Uh, The answer is a lot. Um, That's why I wrote a book about it. Um, but But the interesting thing, you know, like a lot of things, is that You know, our ideas about eating, how we think about it now, um, these are all historically situated as well, right? So, you know, while it is probably true that humans, since the beginning of time, uh, thought some things about what they ate, the way in which we think about food now and how we associate it to the idea of taste, um, sort of both the sensory judgment and then sort of the broader aesthetic way of thinking about taste, this actually comes from a particular part of period of time, Um, and it comes from the 18th century. And so that's sort of the starting point for my book, is looking at this period of time when ideas about eating really dovetailed, sort of came together with larger, sort of weightier ideas about aesthetic judgment, and how, for a brief moment, those conversations were the same conversation. Um, And then, you know, the other sort of Uh, I mean, it's a looking back on it, you can say, oh, it's sort of a lucky confluence. Um, But really, if you go look at the sort of intellectual genealogy of it, it's not a coincidence at all. It actually makes a lot of sense just on the basis of what people were thinking about at the time. Um, All of this thinking about eating and its broader... Um, the sort of broader significance also coincides with the founding of the United States. Um, and so you get this really interesting nexus of food, of aesthetics, of thinking about what it means to be a republic of thinking about um, sort of both the ideals that the country was intended to express and then also the qualities that its citizens were supposed to inhabit. Um, And all this sort of comes together in in this idea of eating and food and thinking about these processes. Um, So that's sort of a long way into where I actually start the book, which is something a lot more concrete, um, which is a particular episode that is narrated in a biography of George Washington. um, that was uh, written by a relative of George Washington, not published in his own time, so it's uh, published about a hundred years after um, his death, but they talk about uh, a particular moment um, when George Washington was served a uh, type of fish, a fresh shad that came um, from the river nearby, and the, the framing, you know, they describe how, um, you know, Washington apparently had a penchant for this kind of fish, and he had, you know, of course, um, a large staff, many of whom were enslaved, uh, more on that in a minute, um, to sort of cater to his every need. And uh, one of these people, one of his household managers had sort of gone to the market, seen this fish, it was apparently the first of the season, uh, snapped it up. Uh, took it back home. Took it to the cook, uh, a man named Hercules, who was enslaved. Um, who I'll talk a little bit more about later. Um, prepared it for for uh, for Washington, and um, and Washington. Uh, sort of had an unexpected uh, fit. He pushed it away. He said, I refuse to eat this. This is an emblem of luxury and extravagance. Um, You know, how dare you serve this at my table? And it was a big surprise uh, to everyone. (laughs) And in the, you know, uh, both because they thought he liked it, um, his staff was trying to uh, please him. And the response was not at all uh, what they expected. And, you know, in the, the biography of Washington, this is uh, framed in part as a way to, uh, actually to sort of pay tribute to the culinary expertise of Hercules, He was a fascinating uh, man who uh, was known sort of throughout the, the region for being an excellent cook. Also, he was apparently a very uh, stylish dresser um, and was, um, sort of a notable personage, um, around, and I think we would like to know more about his life, and we, we all really have our fragments like this, um, and so the biographer, um, George Washington's grandson, is trying to convey to us, um, what this man was like through this little episode, um, and also, I think, is trying to convey, something of Washington's own character, Mm -hmm. um, which was an attempt to uh, sort of inhabit these ideals that had come to be or that he and his uh, sort of fellow statesmen were trying to strongly associate with the emergent republic. And these included things like simplicity, um, sort of an anti-luxuriousness uh, sort of in order to contrast uh, the sort of fledgling United States with uh, the British crown. Um, this belief that you should be temperate, um, which comes from, you know, there's a whole history of this associated with Puritanism. Um, this idea that things that were plain and sort of utilitarian, um, these things were what the country needed. And you know, this this episode where he doesn't eat the thing that he probably would find delicious because it emblematizes these these sort of larger ideals um, is is really fascinating for me because it sort of shows these mechanisms of of taste at work and how there are these sort of competing strains, again, that happen every single time you make a decision to put something in your mouth or not, as the case may be, um, and how each of these decisions involves either an alignment or a reconciliation or a rejection of sort of these sensory impulses with the sort of larger cultural, um, political, or intellectual frame. Um, so maybe I'll just stop there because that was a lot for me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's it's it, it sets up a really great connection to another thing that I find really fascinating about your book in that you write about the, the alongside these abstract ideas of the founders about um, the things, things that are being talked about, written about, and enacted in the early United States about um, liberty and freedom are happening at the same time that the experiences of eating, the everyday experiences of eating food is being, that food is being grown and prepared by people like Hercules that you just mentioned, and also James Hemings, Sally Hemings' brother. And how this is, to also think about the the the, the idea that the founders hold that the Americans could be civilized if, um, if ideas about civilization and sort of how to comport themselves could be, um, could be expressed by people who were arbiters of taste
1: Yeah, I mean that's the really interesting thing about taste in a, putting it in a U.S. context. And, you know, I should say, you know, I'm not the first person to talk about the alignment of aesthetic taste and gustatory taste, and I'm also not the first person, and this is probably clear to almost anyone in American studies, to talk about sort of the paradoxes of slavery and freedom in the early United States, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But the the interesting thing that is happening here is uh, an alignment of thinking that sort of, in turn, sort of Adds another layer to this contradiction, sort of the Ur er- contradiction of the nation's founding about the persistence of slavery at the same by the same people who um, were advocating for um, sort of philosophical liberty or liberty in the political sense. Um, and this is that if you are going to admit that you can um, sort of take your sensory experience and then impose the sort of layer over it, you know, as Washington did, right, to say, I know this would be delicious, but I'm not Mm -hmm. going to eat it. Or even if you do taste something to say, you know, society tells me that I should not think that this thing tastes good. You know, we can see this a lot now with, I was just reading an article in the New York Times about how bugs are um, becoming increasingly frequent on sort of gourmet menus. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, like, so, you know, foods that are sort of culturally um, sort of exile, and so we were told those don't taste good but do they actually taste good if we didn't know we were eating those things it's really hard to separate um, but the idea that culture or you know or sort of a larger uh, a larger uh, social impulse can sort of sway individuals the senses was really appealing to the nation's founders because they were taking this political leap of shifting from uh, you know a monarchy to a representative democracy, right? And so if you were going to believe that citizens could be trusted to make their own political decisions, it gave them a high degree of reassurance to think, well, like they might not all start with the same impulses, but I bet we can influence how they think. And this mattered a lot for voting, right? And they looked to, and they literally looked to things like eating. I mean, you look at, and this is something I say in the book, you know, right now, when we think about, like, what is, philo- what, if you imagine what philosophy looks like to you, you don't think it's someone musing about drinking a cup of tea or, you know, eating a cookie. Um, and yet, if you go back to the 18th century philosophers, you know, people who we think of as very high philosophers, um, you know, people like Hume, um, Uh, Francis Hedgeson, people like that, they absolutely were thinking and analogizing the act of eating to these sort of more complicated social judgments. So, yeah, so on the one hand, you have this sort of metaphor that was affirming and seemed to suggest that democracy would be okay because people could be educated and guided and cultivated in order to sort of express appropriate taste, whatever that might be. Um, and this appealed to all of the founders because they thought like, okay, you know, we might not all be starting from the same place, but this is another reason why things like education mattered so much. Um, Things like other forms of culture, we can shape people's tastes. But if you open up the fact that anyone's taste can be shaped, the question then becomes, well, where do we draw the limit of who counts as anyone, right? You know, who are we allowing to vote and participate in representative democracy? Um, And in the beginning, you know, if it doesn't include enslaved people, if it doesn't include women, um, you know, how do we reconcile this belief and sort of this general human ability with the reality that we, I'm speaking as a founder, which is sort of a weird perspective, the founders, um, how would they justify excluding certain people who were also people who also either ate things or as I talked about a lot of the book cooked things, um, mm who themselves were essentially tastemakers. Right. You know, why is it that the same people who were helping shape the physical, the gustatory taste of the nation um, were excluded from participating in that same um, nation-building project, or at least formally, um,
0: you know, through, through
1: enfranchisement. And yeah. so this, you know, this sort of prompts, it's really complicated for these political figures. And it's an interesting way in, you know, we have you know, there's countless books that sort of analyze and rehash these foundational documents for the United States and put them in new contexts. And so to me, you know, this just, you know, for my, for the project, um, and I actually, I, I sort of, we can talk about a little bit about this later if you want. You know, it didn't, it didn't start necessarily as being a book about this relationship between um, sort of these influential founders and the people who who cook their food, but that's where I saw this tension play out in, its, in the way in which it was sort of most dramatized in the print record. Um, and that's sort of where I ended up in writing the book. Um, but yeah, just it's, it's this, I mean, it's a very, uh, to me, it's a very clear and compelling and important way of sort of illustrating the contradiction that we're still, you know, wrestling with today, where we see this you know, a real mismatch between both sort of the laws and their enactment that sort of authorize certain people to have power in this country and the people who are actually responsible for sort of shaping the culture on which the country depends.
0: Absolutely. Um, uh, It it makes me think of conversations that that have started to happen in the past maybe five to ten years uh, or so Um, by who gets to claim authenticity or authorship to recipes, even in some more kind of casual conversations about who gets to say they make the best fried chicken when it's two white guys setting up a fried chicken restaurant in Memphis and they suddenly get wildly popular and financially successful. They're sort of not acknowledging the deep history that they're drawing from in order to make that Uh, chicken and then just sort of set up shop in a city that has that has already has so many um black owned chicken restaurants uh that have been doing this for decades and decades but the new kids on the block uh come in and want to sort of be claimed the fried chicken kings
1: yeah, absolutely. You know, Psyche Williams Forsen has a great book about this um, called Building Houses Out of Chicken Legs, mm. actually, but it has it has a lot to do with this idea of sort of culinary theft and appropriation. Yeah. And, you know, how deep it runs and how it unsurprisingly is bound up in questions of race and class and absolutely. sort of who has the power to tell the story and who has the power to open the restaurant and then get it reviewed and get, you know? rich. Yeah. and get rich. Right, right, right. Absolutely. You know, and again, you know, it's this, one of these things where, you know, thinking about eating, which, you know, you can either just do every day and not think too much about it, but if you stop for a minute, it's again, it sort of opens up these questions to be analyzed through a sort of different set of a different set of lenses.
0: You mentioned before when you were when I asked you to tell the story about George Washington's luxurious and elegant shed, you mentioned that that's actually um, uh, that was narrated in a biography about George Washington. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your methodology. You described the value of using a mixed methods approach. Can you explain a little bit more about how you use methods to complement each other in your book an archive of taste? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, the book is in many ways
1: a book about methodology as much as it is about the subject of food and eating in early America. And I didn't intend it to, I didn't intend it that way. Although, you know, it's one of those things where looking back, you know, it makes sense that this is where it ended up. Um, But I, you know, having identified figures like Hercules or uh, James Hemings, who was the enslaved man who Thomas Jefferson um, both sort of had trained as a French chef and then required that he cook all of his food for whom Jefferson received all the credit. Um, You know, I went looking for information about these people in the archive and just found very, very direct, little direct information about them. And this, you know, has to do very clearly with the politics, politics of the archive and the reasons why and, you know, information about the Founding Fathers gets preserved, and the information about the men and women they enslaved does not. Um, But it doesn't change the fact that these people mattered, and their contributions mattered. And I wanted to tell my story in a way that made these contributions commensurate with the men and women, in some cases, who enslaved them. Um, and so then you're sort of left with this methodological, methodological challenge because, you know, someone like Thomas Jefferson, for example, who himself was very aware of his own historical legacy and, you know, did things like he uh, sort of invented a copy machine so he could keep copies of every single le- letter he sent. He was sort of a uh, hoarder is ungenerous, but he did save, like, receipts. He, he saved everything. And so, you know, his personal archive, Um, which has not yet been fully processed, honestly, Um, but at this point has something like, I don't know, 70,000 documents or something. Compared to someone like James Hemings, this man who he enslaved, um, who cooked all of his food, who was by all accounts a phenomenal chef. Um, You know, there's like five or six documents in the archive which help to tell his story. And... You know, that was the point in my research where I sort of came to this, I, you know, I stopped, I paused, and I said, like, what do you do? What do you do with this sort of unbalanced archive? And, you know, one approach is to sort of throw up your hands and say, well, we'll never know. Um, And I should say sort of interestingly, my work on the book, which it began as a dissertation project, but it sort of tracked a lot of scholars, particularly of the Archive of Slavery, sort of dealing with the same challenge more generally. Um, so thinking of people like Segia Hartman um, and more recently, Marissa Fuentes, um, sort of how do you, you know, I feel like for a while there was a sense that you should sort of respect and honor the silence and sort of hold the space mm. for what you can't know. Um, and that was, that was the appropriate response. But after a certain period of time, um, scholars sort of interested in this, in this sort of issue um, began to think, well, maybe what is required is not just to hold the space for silence, which sort of can't help but perpetuate this erasure, um, but ask, you know, what can we, how can we do more with what we have? And this has prompted an array of critical approaches, you know, so you have people like Hartman now uh, in uh, Wayward Live Beautiful Experiments doing this, um, sort of very historically and archivally informed, sort of creative nonfiction. Um, you have people like Fuentes, who advocates for what she calls um, stretching archival fragments um, along the archival grain to sort of take these fragments and make them mean something even more. Um, and you know what I try to do, I, I sort of view my own approach as very much sort of in solidarity with these approaches, but I try to draw a little bit more from some digital techniques as well. I sort of uh, some of the other work that I do um, comes from the field of digital humanities. And so in addition to this way of sort of how do you take the fragments that you have, these sort of facts and tangential references and weave them together into a story that brings this person and their contributions to life. Um, You know, I also tried to sort of use every possible method at my disposal in order to get some more information. So this leads me in the end of the book to do stuff like um, try to visualize some of these archival records. And um, we can talk about that a little bit more. But yeah, I mean, so this mixed methods approach that I described really is just, um, you know, it's coming from this place of, like I said at the very beginning, trying to make these figures who were very much commensurate, trying to make their historical records be commensurate with each other as well. And this requires a fair amount of scholarly intervention, um, which again, I think is not, um, you know, is not something that in its own way is novel, but I do think that not all scholars explicitly indicate that they are doing this. But when I was trying to write these stories, you know, it's pretty easy to tell the story of, you know, any particular episode in, you know, Benjamin Franklin or Thomas Jefferson or George Washington. You know, it's pretty easy to tell these accounts because there's so many uh, archival sources. But you really need to do a lot more work as a scholar. And I think it's important work. And I think um, in some ways it's sort of the most important thing that you can do is to sort of animate these fragments and try to make them come together in a way that testifies to these real people's lives and work.
0: Absolutely. Um, and you mentioned, I don't want to forget that you mentioned your, your digital humanities pro- projects. I want to ask you specifically about, uh, in, a, in a minute, I want to ask you about either the, if you could talk about either data feminism or data by design, oh, sure, but sure. I want to sort of postpone that for a second. I want to read, Uh, Just a sentence from your book, and I was hoping that you might be able to unpack it a little for um, people who are listening, if you don't mind. Uh, You write, by focusing on cooking and eating in the early U.S., the era that gave rise to to many current ideas about the human, about race, and about the archives that inscribe such beliefs and structure into history, I show how meaning is inherently mediated by the materials of its conveyance. sentence really packs a punch. Um, but I was wondering if you, if you would be able to sort of just, um, tease that out a little bit more.
1: Sure. Um, I'm laughing because that was a a line that I had an amazing writing group. I still have an amazing writing group, um, that, uh, sort of helped me work and rework that, that specific line a lot. And so it was as much to the group as it does to, as, to me, and I'm, I, I'm uh, smiling, you can't see, but I'm smiling that that's the line that you picked. That it makes me feel good about collaborative writing processes. Wow. Um, but, uh, you know, I, so I guess there's two things going on there. Um, one is that, you know, as this, one is actually something I've already said. Um, in this conversation, which is that this period of time when people were thinking about eating and about taste and about citizenship as aligned um, also coincides with and in some ways is causally connected to um, what we take today to be um, our definition of the human, our ideas about race as being something that has to do with skin color. Um, You know, all of these sort of what, what we think of today, and this is not news to an American studies scholar, but it may be to sort of a, a general audience. Um, the, for instance, you know, this question about race and the need to sort of define it visually and in stark lines came about in many ways because of these concerns on the part of the founders as to sort of who, was, who would be authorized or who would be allowed to be a citizen. They didn't really need to confront these ideas as much. Um, until they had to make rules about who could or could not um, influence the Republic. And even earlier, sort of questions about what it means to be human, um, these these absolutely come out of uh, sort of the Enlightenment and thinking about, you know, man, you know, sort of the Enlightenment man, um, which of course was a sort of white European male subject. Um, And so all of these questions, they're sort of all bound up in each other, and eating in some ways feels um, less important than these sort of er questions about people and humanity, right? But what I try to say in the book is that thinking about eating, because it sort of is connected to these larger questions about um, race and about uh, the human, it's sort of another way in and let's ideally, you know, this is really what I was sort of hoping to do with my book, let us us sort of tell a different story that in sort of allows us to acknowledge some of the arguments and also philosophies that sort of ran counter to this dominant exclusionary view. So that's sort of one, one part of that line. But the second line has to do with sort of uh, the mediated nature of our knowledge. Um, and this is maybe where I should have started talking about the project, um, because in many ways, you know, this started as a project about food, And it became a project about eating and about race and about nation, sort of only later as I realized the sort of the question kept on expanding outwards. Um, But the first thing that I encountered in this project was I was interested, you know, as a grad student, as they sort of tell you like, you know, pick a topic that you love, which I don't know if that's a that's great advice. (laughs) I did not love eating and food and therefore um, my day-to-day existence as well. Um, But I I immediately realized that if I was going to study food in this time period, you immediately come up with, you run up against the problem in that you do not have direct access to the food that people ate at that time, right? You know, like it literally does not exist.
0: um, Right, right? there's no food in the archive.
1: There's no food in the, right. That's what the, the introduction is called, no eating in the archive. And that's what I try to get at. You know, if you are interested in, you know, other forms of culture, um, you know, like music, sometimes there's a score, um, certainly any sort of textual form of culture, there's often textual records, if you're interested in people or families, you can sometimes find journals or accounts, you know, many different, um, many other forms of culture have um, sort of closer textual representations of that thing that get you a little bit more direct access to your sort of your object of study. But food really does not have that. And you know, even people who say like, well, what about recipes? They tell you a lot. Or you know, what about cookbooks? At that time, even cookbooks and recipes were pretty minimal documents. You know, they were usually just lists of ingredients. Mm-hmm. Even things about like measurements and instructions weren't introduced until the late, uh, well, more universally until the late nineteenth century. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, too, you think, well, what about you know, novels or narratives? You know, don't books talk a lot about day to day life? Um, but really, all you find when you read even some of the sort of richest, thickest, uh, sort of more most sort of formal uh, literary accounts of the time, with rare exception, they don't really spend that much time thinking about eating, in large part because the sort of intellectual, and this is what I was saying at the beginning, sort of eating came to matter over the course of the 18th century at the same time that these cultural works were being produced. And so there were a couple of texts that I do talk about that focus more centrally on eating, Um, but it's really only towards the end of this era that you get anything that you can, I'm just going to say like sink your teeth in, but I didn't mean that to be a pun. (laughs) I actually worked really hard not to have too many food puns in the book um, because it's really tempting. (laughs) Um, But yeah, but you know, but given that this is sort of the fundamental challenge, which is beginning from a place that I can never have direct access to the central object of inquiry for my project it immediately makes you think first of all how do I get there by other means but then second of all it gets you thinking about how nothing really and again this is something that scholars know but are not always forced to confront so directly um you know what is the distance between the, what I want to know about the past and then what the records or the archive tells me. Mm-hmm. Um, and with eating, it just makes it so clear. Um, and, and so to me, that is, um, you know, that was a really important conceptual and sort of uh, intellectual point for me in the course of my research, think sort of wrestling with that, you know. Again, you know, on a different, it's sort of a different scale, but the same issue of sort of wanting to do justice to the subject um, and yet recognizing the chasm between what that meant in its own time and what the archive sort of told me and what I could say with authority.
0: Um, that's so interesting to think about and to consider. Um, since we're, we're kind of running up on the clock here, and I want to reserve time for you to talk about your digital humanities projects, I want to shift to the cover of the book, which you talk about in the introduction and how it's, it's a photograph um, of Hercules, uh, but it's, is it, was it digitally restored? How does it, it has sort of this, um, this, the two ways of sort of viewing this photograph two sort of renderings of it. Can you talk more about that?
1: Yeah, sure. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating story. So I talk about it in the intro and then in the conclusion of the book, I talk about it again because it actually, um, the significance of the, of the image changed um, in between when I wrote the introduction and when I wrote the conclusion. So initially, you know, for many, many years actually, um, so there's, if you, you can Google the book actually, there's an open access version available through the University Press, our University of Minnesota Press's website through their um, digital publishing platform called Manifold. It doesn't, you sort of need to follow a weird path on the internet in order to find it, but it's there. Um, but if you go there, you'll find a very large picture of the cover of the book, and there is, uh, the, the left-hand side of it is an oil painting, and it is what appears to be a picture of a chef who is Black. And for many years, this image was attributed, it was believed to be of Hercules, of George Washington's uh, cook, and it was attributed to Gilbert Stewart, the Artist who painted the famous portrait of George Washington that appears on the one dollar bill, and you could find in art uh, historical scholarship a lot of justifications for why um, why this might be a painting by Stuart, why it might be Hercules um, having to do with the time period, the date that it was given, because Stuart had come to paint Washington's portrait, and, you know, scholars thought, well, it might, you know, given, again, what I mentioned at the beginning, Hercules apparently was an incredibly, um, like, fashion-forward person. Apparently, he was a sight to behold. People always talked about his wardrobe. and he was also big, like a big person. So people, you know, scholars thought, well, it would make sense that maybe this person sort of captivated Gilbert Stuart, and um, he had him sit for the portrait. But it was never the question. It was never really authenticated. Um, And there were always doubters who said, you know, I just, it doesn't really seem right to me. Um, You know, it was excluded from a lot of the Gilbert Stuart scholarship or sort of listed in the, you know, with an asterisk and um, You know, but it's still, it, it was, it was uh, installed in a museum in Spain, um, a national museum. It's in their permanent collection. It was always attributed to Gilbert Stewart. It was always said, this is believed to be a portrait of George Washington's cook until a couple of years ago um, when they did a, a pretty comprehensive um, authentication study of it. Um, and at that point, it was removed from the uh, Spanish museum's holdings. And I discovered this because I was in the process of trying to get uh, uh, image permissions to print the image inside the book. And I had previously downloaded the image. It's a pre 1900 image. So, and it had been acquired by, um, uh, Wikimedia. So, you know, you can get this high res image of it. It's out, it's in the public domain, Mm -hmm. but I wrote to the museum and I said, you know, Hey, I'm going to print this on a book. I know this is public domain, but, um, you know, I would, uh, I just wanted to, you know, check with you, should I, how should I credit you? Um, And I went looking for the image, and I couldn't find a record in the museum's catalog of the image anywhere, you know, like previously you had been able to go and, you know, search by artist or subject or whatever, and it would show up, but it just, it wasn't there, it wasn't, you know, removed, it wasn't, uh, you know, it didn't say, you know, uh, currently being authenticated. It just, it didn't exist at all. And this sort of sent me down this rabbit hole, and I ended up learning a lot about this um, authentic, this sort of, this process of authentication through actually the food critic for the Philadelphia Inquirer. His name is Craig LeBon. He has done a really interesting series of just articles for the Philly Inquirer. Um, on this, and what they realized is that you know they did uh, one of the things they did is a UV analysis of the paint, and Ooh. that sh- can tell you whether or not there has been um, overpainting. And uh, what they revealed through this analysis, and that's actually the, the image on the right, is from the UV analysis of the of the painting. It's actually a photo taken by this reporter, um, and it revealed that it did actually date from, to the same time period, um, so the date was right, um, but it was not a painting by Gilbert Stewart. The brushstrokes did not match at all, and it was not a portrait of a chef at all. Um, in fact, and I actually don't talk about this that much in the book because kind of it's too complicated to get into, but they believe it is um, what people thought was a chef's toque, you know, the fancy chef hat, um, sure. is actually a sort of ceremonial Caribbean uh, headwear Um, And this appears to be a portrait of a fairly well-to-do Black Caribbean man who was not a chef, was certainly not uh, Hercules. And, um, you know, and that's sort of where it is right now. Um, So I sort of had to, from the beginning of the book to the end, I sort of had to ask myself, well, what does it mean that for so many years people just sort of wanted this painting to be right. of Hercules so badly that they, and then afterwards there were all these sort of hot takes and they're like, oh, well, they should have known. The chef's hat, that wasn't really introduced until the 19th century in France. And, you know, there was like a fashion take. There was a, you know, well, you should look at the the pose of the, the way in which the, he's looking at the, the sitter is looking at the the viewer. You know, that is sort of an acronym. You know, there was all, everyone had an opinion after the fact, but most people, until the sort of the this extensive analysis revealed it to be definitely not Hercules, people just kept on hoping that it might be him, and so I just talk about this in the conclusion as another sign of sort of just how much we want there to be information in the archive about persons and also things like food that sort of just isn't there, mm-hmm. and how. Um, one way of, you know, I sort of view my project, sort of both historically and methodologically, as a way of trying to, in some ways sort of meet the desires or satisfy the desires of of people in the present who want to know more about these figures about which, you know, will always, it will always be disappointment. Um, You know, and I'm, again, I'm not the first person to talk about the sort of experience of disappointment in the archive, especially when dealing with uh, research on enslaved people. Mm. Um, But, you know, this is this, this is this experience that scholars have and probably, you know, people, anyone might have um, when they just, they recognize the importance of these historical figures and they want there to be more information because they know, you know, that there should be information that attests to their significance in the past, um, but it's just not there. And there's sort of nothing that we can do now in the present about the artifacts that were or were not saved in the past. But what we can do is try to give significance to, um, to, you know, what we do have. And in a way, you know, it matters less that the portrait, to me at least, and I can say this, I'm lucky I was trained up in English as opposed to history, and so I feel like you could get away less with this claim in history. Um, but it matters less to me that the portrait is not of Hercules. I still think it's a really interesting image to analyze, um, because, because precisely because people wanted it to be of Hercules. Right. Um, and I think that matters just as much as the fact that it was not, it's not actually him.
0: So now, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the the digital humanities projects you're working on, and you could either talk about data feminism specifically, or data by design, or both. It's take your it's your choice. Sure.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Like you know, both of these projects are connected to this project more closely than you would think. You know, both because this project is actually what prompted me to turn to digital methods in the first place, as I was talking about before. You know, I actually. I worked as a software developer before I went to grad school, but I always initially thought that grad school was a sort of turn away from that career. And there wasn't a way, and I didn't want there to be a way to reconcile them. Mm. Um, But this this project was what brought me back because I realized that there were things that digital methods could do that could sort of supplement the sort of traditional methods of scholarship. Um, And that, you know, sort of coincided with the, the rise of digital humanities more generally. Um, but the two more recent projects that you mentioned are um, places that this project has sort of taken me. Um, Data Feminism is a book that just came out this year. It's also available open access on the MIT Press website. It was co-authored with a colleague um, whose emphasis is on visualization design and also um, urban planning. And uh, in that book, we were trying to sort of you know, we say operationalize feminist thinking for data and data science, although I think it's important to just sort of caveat that and say not in like an instrumental way, but to really ask, you know, feminist theory. um, And there's also, and we talk explicitly about it being intersectional feminist theory and in that way sort of connected to critical race theory and studies, which I employ more so in this book. Um, But you know, all the different techniques in which uh, feminist thinking and also activism sort of lets us sort of do better data science by providing these lenses into how power operates, um, you know, how categories are constructed, why certain, you know, the importance of including multiple perspectives in a project. Um, And there are really, there are sort of traces of this way of thinking in um, an archive of taste, you know, I've always been interested in, I mean, this is a quote from Michel Rapetria, the Haitian historian, about power and the production of history. Um, and that same power, these same forces of power impact contemporary practices, whether knowledge practices, whether they're writing a book, doing archival research, or also data science. Um, so that's what that project is. You know, we wrote it more for students and, uh, you know, practitioners, you know, people in the world, um, in the world of data science, um, and sort of a, a carrying over uh, sort of what feminist scholars know already about what their work can do and sort of demonstrating how it can be applied. But we also think and we've heard that it's been helpful for people interested in things like um, feminist theory but also feminist media studies and things like this to sort of show sort of model how their thinking um can be applied to these contemporary practices um, and then the other project so that's this co-author project is out um, there actually is going to be an exhibition of some of the art that we talk about in the book and that inspired the project um, so that's sort of going to be the the conclusion of that project it was the exhibition should have opened already but covid um, has delayed it but it's still <laughs> happening um, And then the other project that I'm working on now is Data by Design, which is this history of data visualization, which is actually, in many ways, a synthesis of the sort of thinking that I did for an archive of taste and some of the, um, sort of the same approach of, you know, thinking about historical and theoretical approaches that come from the humanities, and how they can inform sort of more technical topics. And in this one, I tried to tell the story of the history of data visualization, which, you know, conveniently for me, also dates to this time period, um, you know, the the 18th century into the 19th century. Um, And in the same way that questions of taste um, are bound up in questions of race and nation and uh, agency and authorship and things like this, Um, you know, lo and behold, the production of visual knowledge also is bound up in these same questions and in many ways much more directly than certainly the the visualization community has ever thought about, you know. Um, And so I, I, I pick a couple of examples, sort of key examples, and it's a it's a web-based project. It will be available just to um, sort of read and scroll through um, online. And there are a lot of interactive elements. You know, part of what I wanted to do was both tell the story of these images, but also sort of show how they worked and what they were intended to do. And to do so, um, taking advantage of some of the affordances of the web, which means that you can sort of sync text and image, and you can have the images transform for the the viewer. Um, but I think that, you know, it's... This is a project that came almost directly out of this uh, archive of taste in many ways because uh, Thomas Jefferson, his favorite teacher, I think I talk a little bit about this in the the chapter on data visualization in the book, Um, but he went to William and Mary for college. He writes a lot, a little, um, about his favorite professor there. Um, And that professor went home from Virginia after training Thomas Jefferson and became a private tutor to the person who um, would become the person cited as like the founder of modern data visualization, the man who, in, or, as far as we know, invented the pie chart and the, bi- and the bar chart. You know, people just didn't have those visual representations before. Um, and he, they were trained by the sa- exact same person. And so all of Jefferson's ideas about classification and, in particular, racialized classification systems and the importance of sort of imposing a hierarchical order on things but also people in the world through um, visual structures, I sort of argue in this project you can sort of see below the surface of all of these uh, visual forms as well. So um, I'm really excited about that. That's the one I'm working on right now and I'm gonna try to release it um, sort of chapter by chapter. That's Mm -hmm. one of the things that's exciting about doing something on the web and um, so yeah so if any uh, Interested listeners want to check it out. It's uh, data by. De- oh, actually, I wish the the website the website is a little bit complicated because see, like my design link- was taken, but I can send it to you.
0: Yeah, I'll definitely include a link in the um, on the episode page uh, sure. when this uh, when this gets up there. Um, well, I thank you once again for for talking to me. Um, I found your book really so interesting in so many ways, and to think of. Uh, Think about a historical context, of course, and sort of the founders and their abstract ideas about uh, sort of founding principles of, of the nation. But um, it's really kind of it's really so appropriate to think about even the stories that we tell today. Um, I, I really I think it's a I think it's both historical and very sort of appropriate to think about the, the here and now. Um, so, uh, again, this has been new books in American studies, a channel on the new books network. I'm Diana de Pasquale. Today, we've been talking to Lauren Klein, a professor in the English department at Emory university and an and author of an archive of taste, race and eating in the early United States. And it's published by the university of Minnesota press. Uh, thank you so much, Lauren. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much, Diana.
1: I did too. I really appreciate your taking the time.
0: Okay, thanks.